I'm Fash Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we talked to David Ferris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University and the author of three great books, including most recently, The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. We had a great conversation with David, who was calmly and carefully explaining how we are about to lose our democracy, if not having lost it already. It is terrifying and true and perhaps underselling the crisis that we are in. So get excited. You're going to end feeling really hopeful about the future of secession, maybe. (laughs) In the meantime, I want to remind you that you can call and leave us a voicemail with guest ideas or comments or complaints at 929-399-6748. You can also send us an email at battleground at the recount.com. We would really love to hear what's on your mind. I certainly would love to hear from you. And we have been pouring through the prior comments. So thank you for those of you who've already contacted us. It's already influencing the way we're thinking about future shows. Before we get to David, Amanda, I wanted to hear your thoughts on the wonderful senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who had an op-ed published last Sunday where he came out against the For the People Voting Rights Act and reiterated his opposition to killing the filibuster. My take on Joe Manchin is and continues to be that the great and respectable and honorable senator from West Virginia is a gaslighting piece of shit. And I think his op-ed from over the weekend reaffirmed that position and in fact made me feel very validated that he is just going to keep holding the football and then yanking it away at the last minute. (laughs) Baz, you talk to the White House occasionally. Why isn't Joe Biden lighting a fire under the asses of the collective United States Senate about killing the filibuster? What is his thinking here? Well, he's introduced the jobs plan, families plan, which incorporate making wealthy corporations start paying their fair share, wealthy individuals start paying their fair share. And that's kind of first order priority for him. Mm -hmm. And in order to get that done, he needs every single Senate Democratic vote. And you think about how they sequence these things, like, okay, well, we got to get Joe Manchin for that one. And if you start getting into very testy, angry confrontation <laughs> with Joe Manchin such that you lose that, it starts spiraling downhill for you pretty fast. It's over before it was formally over. And the flip is also true, that if you can get Joe Manchin on your side passing a second major initiative, hopefully that continues to accrue to your advantage if you're Joe Biden saying, hey, now we've done two major things together, Joe Manchin, and these have all been popular, and I still retain my popularity, and people like these things. Now I'm asking you to go even further. So I think that you have to think about these in acts in a play. And so you've had like an act one and an act two. That relationship, you know, is complicated between (laughs) Manchin and Biden and the whole Senate Democratic Caucus. So I think it's going to have other acts to come. And we should continue as outside agitators, activists, advocates, raising our voices, demanding and pressuring because it's a core part of the leverage for Joe Biden, too, to say, hey, you know, I need to get these things done. People are demanding it of me. So I hear you and I am sure that that is true. And don't you just want to scream at them? If you kill the (laughs) filibuster now, the infrastructure bill could be so much bigger. It could be so much better. It could actually be bipartisan. I agree with that point is important that it could be bipartisan because a lot of these things you could imagine Susan Collins, Mm -hmm. Lisa Murkowski, Romney, maybe Mitt Romney occasionally. Yeah, you could imagine a couple of them here or there joining 
And right now, it doesn't matter if they join because you've got 52, 53. So what? What does that matter? You needed 60. And imagine if you cut it down to 50 where those votes mattered. And you could still, if you're Joe Manchin, say, I want a bipartisan bill. But you need one, <laughs> two, three. You can possibly get that. And it is so demoralizing. It's so demoralizing for the activists, for the newly engaged voters, for the people who've been working our asses off for two or five or 10 or 20 years to try and win power and actually do something with it. And to see our leaders fail to meaningfully take action, it can easily send you into a, what the fuck is the point of this, which is both something that the Republican Party wants us to feel. They want us to feel like we don't have a shot, like there's no point in engaging. But it's hard to avoid that temptation. You know, I am both a professional and personal optimist. I believe that engaging in the process and that fighting for our values and that staying in the work is worth it and that we can get a good outcome if we try, if we're willing to engage. Democratic leaders in Congress are making it really hard to hold on to that hope for a brighter future. And I am so mad at them for that. So mad at them. The upshot you know, if there is one is that we have a few months to get this right. And Biden's got a popular agenda. He's a popular president. I think it could do a hell of a lot to restore the Democratic brand if we deliver on some of these Jobs and Family Act plans. I would love to see us move and get something done on, mm -hmm. on voting rights, some kind of agreement that, you know, that we could push through some changes. But there's a chance that before the end of this year, this is it, because then it becomes definitional in voters' minds of who you are. Yeah. The longer you wait, if you don't do things this year that then people will see the benefits of next year as they go and vote, then you've lost that opportunity. Yeah. So I don't know, Faz, do you feel hopeful about the state of democracy? <laughs> well, we have to remain hopeful. The fight is always ever present. And <laughs> we wouldn't do this work. I mean, I, I often am asked, well, what keeps you motivated politics? It's injustices, mm -hmm. right? And we know them. We talk about them. If, if things were great, then... I wouldn't be doing this work, but it's the injustices that drive you. And you got to feel some optimism, as you said, that we will fix it, that we got to just keep pushing and trying. And progress comes sometimes more incrementally than we would like, but it's coming. And if not, the great nation state of New York would welcome you to our independent borders. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Amanda, let's get to our conversation with David Ferris. David, we are so glad to have you on Battleground today. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Hello, David. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have been writing for years about the structural problems that face Democrats and the procedural blockages that Republicans have thrown into the, the mess that is our democratic system right now. What makes this moment different? Why is now a crisis? Well, we've had these structural problems in our democracy for a long time, and it's in the last 10 years or so that they've started working against Democrats systematically, even more systematically than they were in the past. That's the malapportionment of the Senate. That's gerrymandering leading to Democrats needing to win the House popular vote by three, four or five points to win a majority. It's the Electoral College misfires where 14 years ago, Democrats had an advantage in the Electoral College, right? Mm -hmm. But now all three of these things are working against the party and leading to a kind of minority rule at the, at the national level. And now we have a, a Supreme Court that represents a minority of the population and a Senate 
that until recently represented a minority of the population. David, it sounds like we don't have a democracy, actually. <laughs> right. No, exactly. It's uh, <laughs> it's not in keeping with, with any kind of small d democratic theory that you would stand behind. And this has been a huge problem for a long time. And what makes the moment that we're living through different now is that in addition to all these structural problems, in addition to the Republican voter suppression tactics that have been going on for 20 years, we have now added uh, a sort of overt unapologetic authoritarian element mm -hmm. that is in the process of staging a takeover of the Republican Party at the behest of the former president who's holed up in Florida with the MyPillow guy talking about getting himself <laughs> reinstalled as president in August. You don't know whether to laugh or cry. Mm -hmm. But the reality is they took a test run at how they want to overthrow democracy last year. And it didn't work, not because it's impossible to pull this off, but rather because they didn't have the right people in the right places to overturn an election after the fact. And that's what's scary, is that the conspiracy thinking has taken over the party. It's taken over the rank and file, for sure. I don't know how many members of Congress actually believe this stuff versus they're just going along with it. But there are some true believers in Congress. And it seems pretty clear to me that given another opportunity to run the 2020 playbook in 2024, they will do it and that it could work. And if they do that, we're really in a lot of danger. <laughs> And just one defining the terms question, the right people in the right places, that's local election authorities, county clerks. Can you specify? Yeah, sure. So it's it's two different things, right? Mm -hmm. It's secretaries of state. And it was really important that Democrats had the governorships and the secretary of state offices in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in the lead up to 2020. And that the Republican election officials in Arizona and Georgia, <laughs> I don't know if they're good people or what, but they didn't play along, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so those are critical offices. And you see Republicans trying to put pressure on local officials by criminalizing certain behaviors. Like if you don't purge the roles, the voter roles in the exact way that I tell you to, this is what's happening in Texas, mm. we're going to put you in jail. And so many of these local election officials are volunteers. Right? It's just like crazy. What they're obviously trying to do is to prevent decent people from taking these jobs and for volunteering for these positions. Because like, why would you do that? If the legislature of your state is like, if you make a minor error, <laughs> we're going to put you in prison. It's meant to chill the desire of anyone to want to participate in democracy, to do this work, to give the state legislature or state judges greater ability to overturn elections. So it's local officials. I think more importantly, it's the statewide officials who are overseeing the elections. Mm -hmm. And so Congress is the other feature of this, which is like, if you have a rogue state government in, let's say, Michigan in 2024, you know, Whitmer loses next year. Republicans will obviously hold the state legislature. And Biden wins it by a point. Michigan legislature and the Michigan secretary of state and the Michigan governor are all like, fraud. <laughs> like, I can't tell you where there was fraud, but there's fraud. And so we're just going to give our electors to Trump. At that point, which is obviously total nonsense, it will just end up in front of Congress. And if Congress is arbitrating a dispute between competing slates of electors, there's no clear mechanism in the statute that governs the counting of those electoral votes that would allow the, the real winner to just become the real winner. Right? Like it's the Electoral College and the Constitution, mm -hmm. they are not self-enforcing mechanisms. They require high-minded people in the offices that have the power to determine winners and losers. Yeah. In my mind, that would be the fruition and culmination of what has already been takeovers at the state level in the subversion of democracy, which many people are, may not be aware of. Many of us focus on federal gerrymandering and how that affects congressional districts. There is state gerrymandering that affects state legislatures. And if you look at Wisconsin, for instance, probably the best example around the country of gerrymandering's effect on a state legislature, you have situations in which, if I remember my stats correctly, you know, in 2016, 
if you added up all the state legislative seats in Wisconsin, you know, I think Democrats gathered 45, 46% of the vote. You flash forward two years later, they have a wave. Democrats have a wave in the state of Wisconsin. They went about roughly 53% of the vote, I think, if I remember correctly. And you that's an upsurge of, what, 8% of the vote. You know how much it affects their state legislative seats? Like, basically none. They gain maybe one or two, right, in a 99-seat assembly. And so you have a situation which almost is irrespective of whether they get 45% of the vote in the state or 53% of the vote, they're locked in a minority of basically essentially having one-third of the state assembly. And what has happened there, David? How the hell did this come about? Well, for one thing, we were asleep at the wheel in 2010, mm-hmm. which was, I think, one of the most important elections of my lifetime. And like too many people just didn't show up for it. And the National Party was not particularly keyed into turning people out or they didn't understand the threat that was coming at them. But fundamentally, Republicans won in a wave election in 2010, which was a redistricting year, a census year. And in state after state after state, Republican legislatures in conjunction with newly elected Republican governors drew these crazy maps that made it impossible for Democrats to win the legislature back unless they won just like a huge supermajority. Like I think the estimates are that Democrats would have to win over 60% of the vote in Wisconsin to win a majority in the state legislature. Just a majority. Just a majority, right? To have a supermajority to get a majority. And that's crazy because it creates this circular structure of authority in Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania and in Michigan where the voters want to change the leadership of the state. The voters want to be governed by Democrats. Now, these are closely divided states, right? Like, they don't always want to be governed by Democrats. Clearly, in 2010, they did not. But the spirit of democracy is not that you win one election and then you entrench your power such that it can never be broken. And so in Wisconsin, you had a Republican governor for so long and a Republican state legislature that you now have a Republican Supreme Court. Right. Because in theory, Wisconsin has a Democratic governor now, right? And he, he gets to veto these maps that are produced by the legislature. But no one really thinks it's going to work because the dispute between the legislature and the governor is going to go to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and they're going to approve whatever maps that the Republicans give them or make modest changes that are cosmetic, but that fundamentally allow Republicans to stay in power in Wisconsin forever. And this has real world impacts. You can take anything from COVID. You look at the disparities in the state of Wisconsin you know, Tony Evers is trying to institute mask mandates, trying to make sure that we were taking care of black and brown populations. Guess what? The state legislature hated it, mm-hmm. overruled them, fought back. Thus, COVID disparities in that state raging further. I mean, you now have a Republican legislature that says, even if you do something, we're going to fight you and undermine it at the court level. I mean, Tony Evers is one of the weakest governors in America. Not Evers himself, right? right. but the office has been transformed yeah. into such a shell of what it is that he can't really do much of anything except fight this like rearguard action against incipient authoritarianism. And it's not working very well. And so Wisconsin is like the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the country. This is what they want to do to the United States. And in some ways, they're so lucky that (laughs) in so many ways, it's already like that, but they want to make it worse. And they're not satisfied with having this massive structural advantage in national and state elections. They simply no longer want to face the electorate in a free and fair fashion. And so... All of these things should raise alarm bells for all of us. But the fact that you have the former president talking about what amounts to a coup is not great. Not great. Is there any way to (laughs) fix what's happened? Wisconsin is the prime example here. Is there any way to fix it? Sure. But the fixes are much easier to do at the federal level. So Mm -hmm. the Constitution contains a clause, the Elections Clause, that allows Congress to pass pretty much any regulations it wants about the conduct of federal elections. So that is why H.R. 1, the For the People Act, contained a provision that would mandate nonpartisan redistricting for all 50 states. 
it's not a perfect solution mm -hmm. because geographic sorting actually will make it hard to draw perfectly fair maps, but it would go a long way towards preventing Republican trifectas, you know, Republicans who control the state legislature and the governorship from just drawing whatever crazy map that they want, because the reality is Republicans have more of those opportunities than Democrats do. A. B, the whole thing is crazy to begin with. No other democracy on earth allows partisan officials to draw boundaries for the election districts that systematically disadvantage their opponents. And the Supreme Court has said, uh, it's not our job. I'm sorry. <laughs> Fix it in Congress. By the way, that was on the Wisconsin case, right? Yeah. Right. The Gill case, right? Went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court had an opportunity to say that the Wisconsin's map was unconstitutional. And guess what? They punted on it and said, no, it's not. And then sent it back down. Yeah. I mean, but <laughs> the conservative justices on the court, when they get a case, they meet and they're like, how can we reinforce Republican structural power? And they just do that thing. There's no real principle behind it. Mm -hmm. So they could fix the federal problem. They could mandate nonpartisan redistricting. That would fix, I think, 75% of the problem. The problem is that there's no clear authority to regulate the conduct of state elections. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Congress could say Wisconsin has to use nonpartisan redistricting for its House delegation. But Wisconsin could still say, you know, you don't get to tell me how to draw the state legislative maps. And so at the end of the day, the only way to fix these problems is to elect Democratic governors who have veto power over the maps. And in some states, they don't even have that. So the situation is worse in North Carolina, where the governor has actually no role at all <laughs> in approving the maps. So it's a situation that can feel really hopeless. Yeah. If you passed nonpartisan redistricting at the national level, I do think that Democrats could get clever mm. and try to find a legislative way to, to tie the drawing of these districts together. They could pass a law saying that you can't have these districts drawn in different ways or something, because the reality is it would be very confusing to use two different sets of procedures right. for federal elections and state elections. I mean, not the maps, the maps they could do, right? But if Democrats mandated automatic voter registration, they mandated certain amounts of early voting and mandated mail balloting, and it stood up in court, which, you know... <laughs> I don't know, with the Supreme Court. Let's just say it stood up in court and Republicans are like, okay, so we're going to use automatic voter registration for federal offices, but not for state. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. right. and we're going to have early voting hours for Congress, but we're not going to have it for the state legislature. I think it would expose the contradictions in this problem in a way that might lead to change at the state level. But fundamentally, yeah, it's a problem. We are going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with political scientist David Ferris. Welcome back to Battleground. You mentioned in 2010 that that was essentially the watershed year for Republicans. Coming off a Tea Party wave, Obama's his first two years in office, basically we reduced our state legislatures by half, if I remember correctly, right? We just lose tons and tons of state legislative seats and governorships. And we're now at that moment again. We're 10 years later. It's 2020. We have a census year. What the heck is going on right now around the country with these maps? Give us a state of play of what you're observing. I mean, Republicans are preparing to administer a very aggressive gerrymander, and they have the additional bonus of gaining seats from the reapportionment of the House of Representatives. So I live in Illinois. Every 10 years, Illinois just loses another seat because no one wants to live here, I guess, even though it's actually really <laughs> nice. I live one mile from an inland ocean. You should, you should come here. It's great. <laughs> But we lost a House seat and it's going to Texas and it's going to Florida. So Texas got two, Florida got one, and they have Republican trifectas in both of those places. And they have the additional benefit of knowing that Democrats have been gaining strength in some of the suburban areas, particularly in Texas, but also in Florida. So they know where the Democratic voters are. They're going to draw those districts as aggressively as possible without running afoul of the few remaining protections against it. 
Uh, in other words, they can eliminate some Democratic seats so that our four-seat majority at this point, like just rerun the 2020 election on the new maps, Democrats would lose the House. We've talked about like the cardinal sin of Democrats in 2010. It wasn't even against a plan that was a secret. Like Karov took an op-ed in March 2010 ahead of the election and said, here are the hundred or so seats we're going to target. We're going to flip them. We're going to spend X amount of money doing it. And we're doing it specifically for this goal. It was never even like low key under the radar. You know, you mentioned secretaries of state as one of the roles that we can control. You know, county elected officials is one of the roles that we can control. We could repeat the same mistakes of 2010 again if we're not careful. I mean, in some ways we already have. Yeah. <laughs> 2020 was a redistricting year election. And Democrats, to their credit, invested a lot of money in state legislative races and just lost them anyway. In some places, really shocking mm -hmm. outcomes like in New Hampshire, where Republicans gained seats, even though Biden did really well. I personally think that was because Biden did not demonize Republicans enough. <laughs> That's my pet theory is he gave people like this permission structure to say, like, vote for me to fix the country. But feel free to go vote for your Republican friends in, in the state legislature because they're fundamentally harmless people who appeared several times at the uh, at the DNC. But yeah, so we, we didn't do what we needed to do mm -hmm. last year in terms of recapturing enough state legislative chambers. Any, any state legislative chambers. Not a single one. Yeah. But yeah, so that already happened, right? And so that, that ship has kind of sailed. Mm -hmm. And the scary thing is that like everybody's talking about HR1 as if this can fix the problem, but it has to happen actually pretty soon. Yeah. Because these maps will get made. Right. People will start running for those seats. It's not like if Mansion and Cinema come around next summer and pass HR1, they'll be like, okay, stop the presses. We're going to redraw all the maps and just hang with us. It'll be too late. You know, it'll be too late to fight the 2022 midterms on fair ground. This is a critical point. Mm -hmm. Walk people through that just for a second, David. So you're saying that we need to pass it, let's say this year, before the end of the year, need to change the filibuster in order to do that. So everyone understands you got to change the Senate filibuster. And if we were to pass this voting rights bill, then it would mandate that all of these states would have to create independent commissions in order to redraw their congressional maps. Is that right? And you're saying that in order to stand all of those up across 50 states, it'll take some time. And if we wait another year, those maps will have already been drawn. Right. So I think you could get it done if the bill was passed by the end of this year. I think it would be doable. It'd be tough. It'd be tough. But like, you remember when Pennsylvania the Supreme Court redrew the Pennsylvania state map. And they did that actually fairly early in 2018 mm -hmm. in time to have that be the map for the 2018 midterms. Now, the laws vary by state, right? So that might not be possible in every single state. The other problem is that Democrats could pass HR1 tomorrow morning and the nonpartisan redistricting stuff is going to end up in court. Yeah. They have no leg to stand on, but they're going to sue anyway. Mm -hmm. And some crazy judge in like the Fifth Circuit is going to smack it down. It's going to end up in front of the Supreme Court. And while that's all happening, some of the Republican states could just say, well, we're not going to do it. And Florida could say, but we're not going to do it anyway. <laughs> like, well, how are you going to make me redraw the maps? And so we need enough time for those legal battles to play out in court in order to actually get those maps in place. And if we don't do that, you might as well just wait until 2023 and take your chances next year because there won't be enough time to do it. So time is of the essence, like the clock is ticking and that law needs to be passed well before the midterms really start to ramp up. I just don't see the urgency among Democrats that they understand that. I, right. Uh, to that point, <laughs> I, assume <Same>. your, <laughs> your, I assume your prognostication at this juncture is that let's assume the Voting Rights Act, the H.R.1.S.1, is not passed for the People Act. Right now, if you had to run the 2022 elections, the congressional elections across the country, you're assuming that we just lose the House because of the 
way that those districts have been carved up. Yes. So there haven't been a ton of special elections, but there have been a few. The vibe that we get is that the national environment, interestingly, seems relatively unchanged from November 2020. Mm -hmm. So Democrats have done a couple points better in some of these races, a couple points worse. But we're not seeing what we saw in 2017, which is like Republicans getting like blown out of the water or falling way, way short of expectations in some of these special elections. But if you take Biden's approval rating, which remains pretty good for the polarization era, really not historically, but right. like for the last 20 years, okay, it's pretty good. The generic ballot number where they ask people, you know, Republican or Democrat next year, Democrats have maintained a reasonable edge in that number that's similar to 2020. And so you might think, wow, we're doing good, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in some ways, the early days of the Biden administration have been, I think, better than some people thought. Mm -hmm. COVID relief bill went well beyond some of my expectations personally. But even taking all of that into account, like we have the same advantages nationally that we had eight months ago, I think that we would still lose the House. So primarily, we're going to lose seats in Florida and Texas. Those are the big ones. Now, we may get a seat in Colorado, maybe get a seat in Arizona, although probably not because Republicans control the, the architecture there. But then you also have like all of these Republican trifectas that have another opportunity to redesign the redesign. gerrymander from 2010. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that gerrymander has expired, right? That's why Democrats were able to seize the House in 2018, even though some observers, if you remember back to 2018, some people were like, Democrats have to win the House vote by 10, 11 points in order to take the House. And that turned out not to be true because Republicans were bleeding support in the suburbs and they were bleeding support from college-educated white voters. And that has changed the maps a little bit. But now we're giving them another crack at it. Right. You know, they know where they've lost support and where they've gained support and they will draw the maps accordingly. And Democrats have tied their own hands in their biggest state of California. Like, we can't do this to them yeah. because we got behind a nonpartisan redistricting measure there, which, of course, is the right thing to do. But it's like we're surrendering unilaterally. And let's play this out to the following election cycle. So Democrats lose the House very likely in 2022. Senate, let's assume we lose the Senate as well. We then have a 2024 presidential election along with another congressional and Senate election in which is compounded by four years now of voter suppression laws being passed on the state level and more rigging of the architecture of these elections in a number of key battleground states. So what happens in a 2024 election? Do we have one? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good question. I think we'll still have an election, right? The question is whether the voters of this country will have any meaningful opportunity to have their voice heard as a majority. You know, the Electoral College advantage of the Republican Party, I was shocked by this, honestly. It got worse between 2016 and 2020. Mm -hmm. So that the tipping point state, the state that provided the 270th electoral vote to Joe Biden, was over four points more Republican than the rest of the country. So that's the baseline. I mean, maybe it'll change between now and then. But you don't generally get huge demographic shifts between elections that like unfold over a longer period of time. So let's say for the sake of argument that the natural advantage of the Republicans in the Electoral College is four points. That means Biden could win the national popular vote by three and a half points. You know, I don't know what that would be, seven, eight million votes and just lose. Like they don't have to steal it if they just win. And the fact that some of these voter suppression laws are on the books or are being pushed in states that will actually be competitive mm -hmm. in 2024 gives them an even greater advantage, right? So this is happening in Arizona, which is a very closely divided state. So that's scary, right? And so Republicans could just win it outright on the basis of their structural advantages and the voter suppression laws that they've already put into place. And I think that's the hope, right? I don't think anybody in the GOP actually wants to have to steal the election. Like, that would be too much hassle. Uh, um, some of them might. <laughs> some of them might. It'd be a thrill ride for them. But um, let's say that something similar to last year happens in 2024. You know, let's give Biden the national vote by five points, and he wins very narrowly across Michigan, Pennsylvania, 
Wisconsin. Let's take a state away from him just to be realistic. Okay, let's say that Trump just wins Arizona. You know, you have three, four, five states that provide Biden the margin of victory. They're all very close within tens of thousands of votes. And they are all controlled by Republicans because we lost the governorships in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin next year. We lost the Secretary of State offices there. They usually vote the same way, but rare, with rare exceptions. Mm-hmm. But we lose all those offices. So we have no control over what happens in these states. And two days after the election, it looks like Biden has won all three of them. And then you start to see the claims of fraud from, I don't know if Trump is going to run or if DeSantis or Ron DeSantis or wh- whatever Whatever. maniac is going to get this nomination, right? And they say the drumbeat of fraud, you know, like I I saw in Detroit on election night, some brown people were voting. It's not right. And the legislature just appoints Trump or DeSantis's electors and the Republican governor signs it and the secretary of state signs off on it. Who's going to stop them? Mm -hmm. They will forward those electors to Congress. Perhaps the Democratic minorities in those legislatures will send alternate slates of electors so that when Kamala Harris goes to count the electoral votes on January 6th, 2025, she'll have two sets of them from multiple states. And a strict reading of the Electoral Count Act says that she has to open them if they purport to be legitimate. Mm. (laughs) This is what happens when you allow the democratic architecture of your country to be steered by 140-year-old laws. It's, It's so crazy. But that's what would happen. Take a quick break to play a few ads. More with David Ferris when we return. Battleground is back with David Ferris. The underlying tension of all this is that democratic policies are more popular, that the demographics are in our favor. You know, you've also written much about how like young people are trending more democratic and that only continues over time because your political ideas are basically formed in your like early 20s so that structurally democrats can never win but mathematically we should win and quite handily yeah i think that there is probably today roughly like a natural four or five point democratic advantage in the country as a whole Mm -hmm. you know i don't know what we want to call it 5248 ish something like that it's getting more pronounced over time because Republicans have been losing incoming 18-year-old voters for close to 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And some of those voters are now my age. They're in their early 40s. And they're not making any inroads with young people who are entering the electorate. So the strongest Republican voters are dying off slowly. If you want to feel good about something, look at the exit polling from 2020. Now, I know exit polls are not perfect, right? But mm-hmm. like you can see trend lines, even if the data is not perfect. Trump got slaughtered with voters under 45 in Ohio. Mm-hmm. He got slaughtered with voters under 45 in Wisconsin. So some of these states that are presumed to be moving in a Republican direction are actually dependent on these older cohorts who are dying off. And so in the medium term, I'm very confident that Democrats will enter the 2028, 2032, 2036 elections with pretty significant advantages in the national popular vote. And the thing that I'm most worried about right now is will American democracy survive? Mm-hmm until that time, until young people have entered the electorate in large enough numbers to flip some of these states that have been voting Republican or to reinforce some of the Democratic-leaning purple states like Georgia or something. It's a Republican-leaning purple state right now, but like the trend line is in one direction. So the smart Republicans know this, okay? They know that demographics are working against them. And of course, you can see shifts in, in each party's coalitions that can cut into some of these trends. Democrats lost some ground with Latino voters last year. It almost cost us the election. But if you take the last 40 years, Biden's performance among that group was pretty much middle of the pack, right? So you need to see these things happening in more than one election to draw some firm conclusions. But fundamentally, Republicans are facing a long-term apocalypse, and that is driving, I think, their short-term turn to authoritarianism because they actually don't really think that they can win elections free and fair anymore. And so the only choice left is either 
to accept that you now live in a multiracial democracy and you have to make some policy concessions or you eliminate democracy and you live in some form of authoritarianism or the country breaks up, right? Like if they do this, I would want to secede. I would, you know, I would want my governor to, yeah. to get out, you know? I was just thinking the great nation state of New York will be really nice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, you know, we're mostly contiguous, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but not entirely. And it would be a catastrophe oh, because, I mean, there's more Democrats in the state of Texas than there are in Illinois, right? I mean, like people are not distributed evenly by state. It's so unfathomable to think about. But if Republicans succeed in this election theft plot, I really fear for the integrity of the United States as a polity. That was very uplifting. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks for sharing it, that, David. <laughs> it doesn't, that doesn't feel, it actually doesn't feel alarmist in the slightest, though. In fact, I think your, like, your even cadence and tone of voice sort of undersells how fucking terrifying this moment is for American democracy. Yeah, I'm not an alarmist by nature. I mean, I would love to go do some academic research and spend more time with my fantasy baseball teams, but I feel like <laughs> we're living through an emergency and I just, I don't know what else to do besides as calmly as possible, raise the alarm with as many people as I can. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of people doing this work. My concern is that too many of them are like on Twitter and not enough of them are in the rank and file of the Democratic Party or in the rank and file of the Democratic Congressional Caucus. You know, I think that a minority of the Democrats in Congress understand this as an existential emergency. Right. Like, I think most of them understand it as a problem that needs to be fixed. But I think too many of them are like, well, if we just pass the right laws, you know, we're going to win next year, right? Because people always reward the party in power when things go well. Mm-mm. And it's like, no, right. <laughs> that is not how it will work. David Ferris, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Really appreciate you joining us for it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This was really fun. Thank you both for having me on. I mean, I feel worse than ever, so <laughs> let's go. That's, I feel like I have that effect on people these days, so you're welcome. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, we're living <laughs> in reality. You got to get fired up for these fights. That's right. <laughs> thanks so much to David Ferris for joining us on this uplifting episode of Battleground. <laughs> Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And a reminder, you can always give us a call at 929-399-6748 or send us an email at battleground at therecount.com. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer and Christian Kasher-Rossell is our executive producer. <laughs>